the first earl of shaftesbury from the encyclopedia britannica eleventh edition this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bev Stevens. Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper, First Earl of, 1621-1683, Son of Sir John Cooper of Rockbourne, in Hampshire, and of Anne, the only child of Sir Anthony Ashley, Baronet, and was born at Wimborne, St. Giles, Dorset, on the 22nd of July, 1621. His parents died before he was ten years of age, and he inherited extensive estates in Hampshire, Wiltshire, Dorsetshire, and Somersetshire, much reduced, however, by litigation in Chancery. He lived for some time with Sir Daniel Norton, one of his trustees, at Southwick, and upon his death in 1635 with Mr. Tooker, an uncle by marriage, at Salisbury. In 1637 he went as a gentleman commoner to Exeter College, Oxford, where he remained about a year no record of his studies is to be found but he has left an amusing account of his part in the wilder doings of the university life of that day in which in spite of his small stature he was recognized by his fellows as their leader at the age of eighteen on the twenty fifth of february sixteen thirty nine he married margaret daughter of lord coventry with whom he and his wife lived at durham house in the strand and at cannonbury house in islington in march sixteen forty though still a minor he was elected for tewkesbury and sat in the parliament which met on the thirteenth of april but appears to have taken no active part in its proceedings in 1640 Lord Coventry died, and Cooper then lived with his brother-in-law at Dorchester House in Covent Garden. For the long Parliament, which met on the 3rd of November, 1640, he was elected for Downton in Wiltshire. But the return was disputed, and he did not take his seat. His election not being declared valid, until the last days of the rump he was present as a spectator at the setting up of the king's standard at nottingham on the twenty fifth of august sixteen forty two and in sixteen forty three he appeared openly on charles's side in dorsetshire where he raised at his own expense a regiment of foot and a troop of horse of both of which he took the command. He was also appointed Governor of Weymouth, Sheriff of Dorsetshire for the King, and President of the King's Council of War in the county. In the beginning of January, 1644, however, 
for reasons which are variously reported by himself and Clarendon, he resigned his governorship and commissions, and went over to the Parliament. He appeared on the 6th of March before the standing committee of the two houses to explain his conduct, when he stated that he had come over because he saw danger to the Protestant religion in the King's service, and expressed his willingness to take the covenant. In July 1644, he went to Dorsetshire on military service, and on the 3rd of August received a commission as Field Marshal General. He assisted at the taking of Wareham, and shortly afterwards compounded for his estates by a fine of five hundred pounds, from which, however, he was afterwards relieved by Cromwell. On the 25th of October, he was made commander-in-chief in Dorsetshire, and in November he took by storm Abbotsbury, the house of Sir John Strangeways, an affair in which he appears to have shown considerable personal gallantry. In December he relieved Taunton. His military service terminated at the time of the self-denying ordinance in 1645, he had associated himself with the Presbyterian faction, and naturally enough was not included in the new model. For the next seven or eight years he lived in comparative privacy. He was High Sheriff of Wiltshire during 1647, and displayed much vigour in this office. Upon the execution of Charles, Cooper took the engagement and was a commissioner to administer it in Dorsetshire. On the 25th of April, 1650, he married Lady Frances Cecil, sister of the Earl of Essex, his first wife having died in the previous year, leaving no family. In 1651 a son was born to him, who died in childhood, and on the 16th of January, 1652, another son, named after himself, who was his heir. On the 17th of January, he was named on the Commission for Law Reform, of which Hale was the chief, and on the 17th of March, 1653, he was pardoned of all delinquency, and thus, at last, made capable of sitting in Parliament. He sat for Wiltshire in the bare-bones Parliament, of which he was a leading member, and where he supported Cromwell's views against the extreme section. He was at once appointed on the Council of Thirty. On the resignation of this Parliament, he became a member of the Council of State, named in the instrument. In the first Parliament elected under this instrument, he sat for Wiltshire, having been elected also for Poole and Tewkesbury, and was one of the commissioners for the ejection of unworthy ministers. After the 28th of December, 1654, he left the Privy Council, and henceforward is found with the Presbyterians and Republicans in opposition to Cromwell. His second wife had died during this year, 
in sixteen fifty six he married a third who survived him margaret daughter of lord spencer niece of the earl of southampton and sister of the earl of sunderland who died at newbury by his three marriages he was thus connected with many of the leading politicians of charles the second's reign cooper was again elected for wiltshire for the parliament of sixteen fifty six but cromwell refused to allow him with many others of his opponents to sit he signed a letter of complaint with sixty-five excluded members to the speaker as also a remonstrance addressed to the people in the parliament which met on the twentieth of january sixteen fifty eight he took his seat and was active in opposition to the new constitution of the two houses he was also a leader of the opposition in richard cromwell's parliament especially on the matter of the limitation of the power of the protector and against the house of lords he was throughout these debates celebrated for the nervous and subtle oratory which made him so formidable in after days upon the replacing of the rump by the army after the breaking up of richard's parliament cooper endeavoured unsuccessfully to take his seat on the ground of his former disputed election for downton he was however elected on the council of state and was the only presbyterian in it he was at once accused by scott along with whitelock of corresponding with hyde this he solemnly denied after the rising in cheshire cooper was arrested in dorsetshire on a charge of corresponding with its leader booth but on the matter being investigated by the council he was unanimously acquitted in the disputes between lambert at the head of the military party and the rump in union with the council of state he supported the latter and upon the temporary supremacy of lambert's party worked indefatigably to restore the rump with monk's commissioners he with hasselrig had a fruitless conference but he assured monk of his cooperation and joined with eight others of the overthrown council of state in naming him commander-in-chief of the forces of england and scotland he was instrumental in securing the tower for the parliament and in obtaining the adhesion of admiral lawson and the fleet upon the restoration of the parliament on the twenty sixth of december cooper was one of the commissioners to command the army and on the second of january was made one of the new council of state on the seventh of january he took his seat on his election for downton in sixteen forty and was made colonel of fleetwood's regiment of horse he speedily secured the admission of the secluded members having meanwhile been in continual communication with monk 
was again one of the fresh council of state consisting entirely of friends of the restoration and accepted from monk a commission to be governor of the isle of wight and captain of a company of foot he now steadily pursued the design of the restoration but without holding any private correspondence with the king and only on terms similar to those proposed in sixteen forty eight to charles i at the isle of wight in the convention parliament he sat for wiltshire monk cut short these deliberations and forced on the restoration without condition cooper was one of the twelve commissioners who went to charles at breda to invite him to return on his journey he was upset from his carriage and the accident caused an internal abscess which was never cured cooper was at once placed on the privy council receiving also a formal pardon for former delinquencies his first duty was to examine the anabaptist prisoners in the tower in the prolonged discussions regarding the bill of indemnity he was instrumental in saving the life of Hasselrig, and opposed the clause compelling all officers who had served under cromwell to refund their salaries he himself never having had any he showed indeed none of the avaricious temper so common among the politicians of the time he was one of the commissioners for conducting the trials of the regicides but was himself vehemently fallen upon by prine for having acted with cromwell he was named on the council of plantations and on that of trade in the debate abolishing the court of wards he spoke like most landed proprietors in favour of laying the burden on the excise instead of on the land and on the question of the restoration of the bishops carried in the interests of the court an adjournment of the debate for three months at the coronation in april sixteen sixty one cooper had been made a peer as baron ashley of wimborne st giles in express recognition of his services at the restoration and on the meeting of the new parliament in may he was appointed chancellor of the exchequer and under treasurer aided no doubt by his connection with southampton he vehemently opposed the persecuting acts now passed the corporation act the uniformity bill against which he is said to have spoken three hundred times and the militia act he is stated also to have influenced the king in issuing his dispensing declaration of the twenty sixth of december sixteen sixty two and he zealously supported a bill introduced for the purpose of confirming the declaration rising thereby in favour and influence with charles he was himself the author of a treatise on tolerance 
he was now recognized as one of the chief opponents of clarendon and the high anglican policy on the breaking out of the dutch war in sixteen sixty four he was made treasurer of the prizes being accountable to the king alone for all sums received or spent he was also one of the grantees of the province of carolina and took a leading part in its management it was at his request that locke in sixteen sixty nine drew up a constitution for the new colony in september sixteen sixty five the king unexpectedly paid him a visit at wimborne he opposed unsuccessfully the appropriation proviso introduced into the supply bill as hindering the due administration of finance and this opposition seems to have brought about a reconciliation with clarendon in sixteen sixty eight however he supported a bill to appoint commissioners to examine the accounts of the dutch war though in the previous year he had opposed it in accordance with his former action on all questions of religious toleration he opposed the shameful five mile act of sixteen sixty five in sixteen sixty seven he supported the bill for prohibiting the importation of irish cattle on the ground that it would lead to a great fall of rents in england ashley was himself a large landowner and moreover was opposed to ormond who would have benefited by the importation in all other questions of this kind he shows himself far in advance of the economic fallacies of the day his action led to an altercation with ossory the son of ormond in which ossory used language for which he was compelled to apologize on the death of southampton ashley was placed on the commission of the treasury clifford and william coventry being his principal colleagues he appears to have taken no part in the attempt to impeach clarendon on a general charge of treason the new administration was headed by buckingham in whose toleration and comprehension principles ashley shared to the full an able paper written by him to the king in support of these principles on the ground especially of their advantage to trade has been preserved he accepts however from toleration roman catholics and fifth monarchy men his attention to all trade questions was close and constant he was a member of the council of trade and plantations appointed in sixteen seventy and was its president from sixteen seventy two to sixteen seventy six the difficulty of the succession also occupied him and he cooperated thus early in the design of legitimizing monmouth as a rival to james 
in the intrigues which led to the infamous treaty to dover he had no part the treaty contained a clause by which charles was bound to declare himself a catholic and with the knowledge of this ashley as a staunch protestant could not be trusted in order to blind him and the other protestant members of the cabal a sham treaty was arranged in which this clause did not appear and it was not until a considerable while afterwards that he found out that he had been duped under this misunderstanding he signed the sham dover treaty on the thirty first of december sixteen seventy this treaty however was kept from public knowledge and ashley helped charles to hoodwink parliament by signing a similar treaty on the second of february sixteen seventy two which was laid before them as the only one in existence his approval of the attempt of the lords to alter a money bill led to the loss of the supply to charles and to the consequent displeasure of the king his support to the lord ruse act ascribed generally to his desire to ingratiate himself with charles was no doubt due in part to the fact that his son had married lord ruse's sister so far from advising the stop of the exchequer he opposed this bad measure the reasons which he left with the king for his opposition are extant the responsibility rests with clifford alone in the other great measure of the cabal ministry charles's declaration of indulgence he concurred he was now rewarded by being made earl of shaftesbury and baron cooper of paulet by a patent dated the twenty-third of april sixteen seventy two it is stated too that he was offered but refused the lord treasurership on the seventeenth of november sixteen seventy two however he became lord chancellor bridgeman having been compelled to resign the seat as chancellor he issued writs for the election of thirty-six new members to fill vacancies caused during the long recess this though grounded upon precedent was open to suspicion as an attempt to fortify charles and was attacked by an angry house of commons which met on the fourth of february sixteen seventy three the writs were cancelled and the principle was established that the issuing of writs rested with the house itself it was at the opening of parliament that shaftesbury made his celebrated delenda est cartago speech against holland in which he urged the second dutch war on the ground of the necessity of destroying so formidable a commercial rival to england excused the stop of the exchequer which he had opposed and vindicated the declaration of indulgence on the eighth of march he announced to parliament 
that the declaration had been cancelled though he did his best to induce charles to remain firm for affixing the great seal to this declaration he was threatened with impeachment by the commons the test act was now brought forward and shaftesbury who appears to have heard how he had been duped in sixteen seventy supported it with the object probably of thereby getting rid of clifford he now began to be regarded as the chief upholder of protestantism in the ministry he lost favour with charles and on sunday the ninth of september sixteen seventy three was dismissed from the chancellorship among the reasons for this dismissal is probably the fact that he opposed grants to the king's mistresses he had been accused of vanity and ostentation in his office but his reputation for ability and integrity as a judge was high even with his enemies charles soon regretted the loss of shaftesbury and endeavoured as did also louis to induce him to return but in vain he preferred now to become the great popular leader against all the measures of the court and may be regarded as the intellectual chief of the opposition at the meeting of parliament on the eighth of january sixteen seventy four he carried a motion for a proclamation banishing catholics to a distance of ten miles from london during the whole session he organized and directed the opposition in their attacks on the king's ministers on the nineteenth of may he was dismissed from the privy council and ordered to leave london he retired to Wimborne and urged upon his parliamentary followers the necessity of securing a new parliament. He was in the House of Lords, however, in 1675, when Danby brought forward his famous non-resisting test bill, and headed the opposition which was carried on for seventeen days, distinguishing himself, says Burnett, more in this session than ever before the bill was shelved a prorogation having taken place in consequence of a quarrel between the two houses supposed to have been purposely got up by shaftesbury in which he supported the right of the lords to hear appeal cases even where the defendant was a member of the lower house parliament was prorogued for fifteen months until the fifteenth of february sixteen seventy seven and it was determined by the opposition to attack its existence on the ground that a prorogation for more than a year was illegal in this matter the opposition were in the wrong and by attacking the parliament discredited themselves the result was that shaftesbury buckingham wharton and salisbury were sent to the tower in june shaftesbury applied for a writ of habeas corpus 
but could get no release until the twenty sixth of february sixteen seventy eight after his letter and three petitions to the king being brought before the bar of the house of lords he made submission as to his conduct in declaring parliament dissolved by the prorogation and in violating the lord's privileges by bringing a habeas corpus in the king's bench the breaking out of the popish terror in sixteen seventy eight marks the worst part of shaftesbury's career that so clear-headed a man could have credited the lies of oates and the other perjurers is beyond belief and the manner in which he excited baseless alarms and encouraged fanatic cruelty for nothing but party advantage is without excuse on the second of november he opened the great attack by proposing an address declaring the necessity for the king's dismissing james from his council under his advice the opposition now made an alliance with louis whereby the french king promised to help them to ruin danby on condition that they would compel charles by stopping the supplies to make peace with france doing thus a grave injury to protestantism abroad for the sake of a temporary party advantage at home upon the refusal in november of the lords to concur in the address of the commons requesting the removal of the queen from court he joined in a protest against the refusal and was foremost in all the violent acts of the session he urged on the bill by which catholics were prohibited from sitting in either house of parliament and was bitter in his expressions of disappointment when the commons passed a proviso excepting james against whom the bill was especially aimed from its operation a new parliament met on the sixth of march sixteen seventy nine shaftesbury had meanwhile ineffectually warned the king that unless he followed his advice there would be no peace with the people on the twenty fifth of march he made a striking speech upon the state of the nation especially upon the dangers to protestantism and the misgovernment of scotland and ireland he was suspected too of doing all in his power to bring about a revolt in scotland by the advice of temple charles now tried the experiment of forming a new privy council in which the chief members of the opposition were included and shaftesbury was made president with a salary of four thousand pounds being also a member of the committee for foreign affairs he did not however in any way change either his opinions or his action he opposed the compelling of protestant nonconformists to take the oath required of roman catholics that indeed as rank says which makes him memorable in english history is that he opposed the establishment of an anglican and royalist organization with 
success the question of the succession was now again prominent and shaftesbury in opposition to halifax committed the error which really brought about his fall of putting forward monmouth as his nominee thus alienating a large number of his supporters he encouraged too the belief that this was agreeable to the king he pressed on the exclusion bill with all his power and when that and the inquiry into the payments for secret service and the trial of the five peers for which too he had been eager were brought to an end by a sudden prorogation he is reported to have declared aloud that he would have the heads of those who were the king's advisers to this course before the prorogation however he saw the invaluable act of habeas corpus which he had carried through parliament receive the royal assent in pursuance of his patronage of monmouth shaftesbury now secured for him the command of the army sent to suppress the insurrection in scotland which he is supposed to have fomented in october sixteen seventy nine the circumstances which led charles to desire to conciliate the opposition having ceased shaftesbury was dismissed from his presidency and from the privy council when applied to by sunderland to return to office he made as conditions the divorce of the queen and the exclusion of james with nine other peers he presented a petition to the king in november praying for the meeting of parliament of which charles took no notice in april upon the king's declaration that he was resolved to send for james from scotland shaftesbury advised the popular leaders at once to leave the council and they followed his advice in march we find him unscrupulously eager in the prosecution of the alleged irish catholic plot upon the king's illness in may he held frequent meetings of monmouth's friends at his house to consider how best to act for the security of the protestant religion on the twenty sixth of june accompanied by fourteen others he presented to the grand jury of westminster an indictment of the duke of york as a popish recusant in the middle of september he was seriously ill on the fifteenth of november the exclusion bill having passed the commons was brought up to the lords and an historic debate took place in which halifax and shaftesbury were the leaders on opposite sides the bill was thrown out and shaftesbury signed the protest against its rejection the next day he urged upon the house the divorce of the queen on the seventh of december to his lasting dishonour he voted for the condemnation of lord stafford on the twenty-third he again spoke vehemently for exclusion and his speech was immediately printed all opposition was however 
checked by the dissolution on the 18th of January. A new Parliament was called to meet at Oxford to avoid the influences of the City of London, where Shaftesbury had taken the greatest pains to make himself popular. Shaftesbury, with fifteen other peers, petitioned the King that it might as usual be held in the capital. He prepared instructions to be handed by constituencies to their members upon election, in which exclusion, disbanding, the limitation of the prerogative in proroguing and dissolving Parliament, and security against popery and arbitrary power were insisted on. At this Parliament, which lasted but a few days, he again made a personal appeal to Charles, which was curtly rejected, to permit the legitimizing of Monmouth. The King's advisers now urged him to arrest Shaftesbury. He was seized on the 2nd of July, 1681, and committed to the Tower, the judges refusing his petition to be tried or admitted to bail. This refusal was twice repeated, in September and October, the court hoping to obtain evidence sufficient to ensure his ruin. In October he wrote, offering to retire to Carolina if he were released. On the 24th of November he was indicted for high treason at the Old Bailey, the chief ground being a paper of association for the defence of the Protestant religion, which, though among his papers, was not in his handwriting. But the grand jury ignored the bill. He was released on bail on the 1st of December. In 1682, however, Charles secured the appointment of Tory sheriffs for London, and, as the juries were chosen by the sheriffs, Shaftesbury felt that he was no longer safe from the vengeance of the court. Failing health and the disappointment of his political plans led him into violent courses. He appears to have entered into consultation of a treasonable kind with Monmouth and others. He himself had, he declared, ten thousand brisk boys in London, ready to rise at his bidding. For some weeks he was concealed in the city and in Wapping, but finding the schemes for a rising hang-fire, he went to Harwich, disguised as a Presbyterian minister, and after a week's delay, during which he was in imminent risk of discovery, if indeed, as is probable, his escape was not winked at by the government, he sailed to Holland on the 28th of November, 1682, and reached Amsterdam in the beginning of December. Here he was welcomed with the jest, referring to his famous speech against the Dutch, Nondum delita Carthago. He was made a citizen of Amsterdam, but died there of gout in the stomach on the 21st of January, 1683. His body was sent in February to Poole, in Dorset, and was buried at Wimborne St. Giles. 
few politicians have been the mark of such abuse as shaftesbury dryden while compelled to honour him as an upright judge overwhelmed his memory with scathing if venal satire and dryden's satire has been accepted as truth by later historians macaulay in especial exerted all his art though in contradiction of probability and fact to deepen still further the shade which rests upon his reputation christie on the other hand in possession of later sources of information and with more honest purpose did much to rehabilitate him occasionally however he appears to hold a brief for the defence and though the picture is comparatively true this life eighteen seventy one should be read with caution finally in his monograph eighteen eighty six in the series of english worthies h d trail professes to hold the scales equally he makes an interesting addition to our conception of shaftesbury's place in english politics by insisting on his position as the first great party leader in the modern sense and as the founder of modern parliamentary oratory in other respects his book is derived almost entirely from christie see also the present writer's article in the dictionary national biography much of shaftesbury's career increasingly so as it came near its close is incapable of defence but it has escaped most of his critics that his life up to the restoration apparently full of inconsistencies was evidently guided by one leading principle the determination to uphold the supremacy of parliament a principle which however obscured by self-interest appears also to have underlain his whole political career he was too ever the friend of religious freedom and of an enlightened policy in all trade questions and above all it should not be forgotten in justice to shaftesbury's memory that during his long political career in an age of general corruption he was ever incorrupt and never grasped either money or land osmond airy end of the first earl of shaftesbury from the encyclopedia britannica 11th edition.